You're listening to a sermon from Tyler Christian Fellowship in Tyler, Texas. Find us on the web at tcftyler.com or send us an email, tcftyler at gmail.com. I remember about two years ago, or maybe it was three years ago, uh, there was a show on TLC. Who watches TLC? Come on, women. And some men. I watch TLC. I'm not embarrassed. It's cool. Yeah, I, I love it. There was a show on... It didn't last very long, but it was a show called Suddenly Royal. Anybody remember that show? Probably not, because it didn't last very long. But I was thinking about that show this week in preparation for what I was going to be sharing this morning. And kind of the, the plot of that show, it was one of those uh, reality documentary type shows that TLC does. And um, the plot of the show, um, the main character was a guy by the name of David Howe. And he was a 45-year-old blue-collar auto mechanic guy from Maryland. And it was him and his wife and uh, young daughter. And they basically were living, you know, regular folk-type life, blue-collar life, living paycheck to paycheck like most folks and doing their best they could to keep their heads above water. And um, David was on the Internet doing some ancestry research, and he discovered that he was actually a distant cousin to Queen Elizabeth II. And so in this discovery, he he found out that he was actually heir to the throne of the Isle of Man, which is a 33-mile-long island uh, located in the Irish Sea, kind of between Ireland and Great Britain. And he found out he was the rightful heir to the unclaimed throne as king of this island. So he stakes his claim. He makes his claim to this island, you know, files the paperwork and all that. TLC picked up wind of this story and kind of did a little documentary to follow this guy through his journey of going from regular Joe, blue-collar worker, to royalty. And like I said, it was it was a funny show. The guy reminded me, he was kind of like a Chris Farley-type character, real bumbling kind of buffoon and... Um, you know, the whole premise was him trying to learn how to live like royalty and be a king. But the reason that that story came to my mind uh, this week as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today is because it's a really good analogy for some believers. And what I mean is this, that there are some believers who never understand fully who they are and what they have. And just like David Howell, this guy grew up, he lived 45 years in the States as a blue-collar, regular Joe worker, not knowing he was royalty, not knowing that he was in a, in a family line of royalty. He just lived a regular, average, hard-working life here in the States. There's a lot of Christians, unfortunately, that live, in in a sense, a spiritual, blue-collar life. You know what I'm talking about? Sort of spiritually living, paycheck to paycheck, just grinding out their journey with God, never really reaching that place of abundance that Jesus died to give us, the abundant life that he speaks of, the full life, the, the abundant life. They're just sort of living on survival mode as a believer, And their high water mark is just trying to keep their head above water and not sin. 
You know what I'm saying? They're just trying to be, you know, faithful to their wife or faithful to their husband or just try to not sin, try to not gossip. And their whole journey with the Lord, rather than it being embracing their identity and their authority as royalty, as a, as a son, as a child of God, a son or daughter of God, they just sort of exist from Sunday to Sunday. Sunday they come in, they get filled up, they touch God, God touches them, and then they go back into Monday, and it's back to spiritual blue-collar living again. So that's kind of where I'm going today. I want to talk this topic through the lens of a story that we're all very familiar with, or should be familiar with, it's the story of the prodigal son. Most Christians, and even non-Christians, at least have a some uh, you know knowledge of this story. But just in case you're brand new, and you don't, I'm going to rehash it for you, just give you the microwave version real quick, okay? So Jesus is telling this parable um, to a group of really religious people and other people that are listening, and Jesus goes into this story. It's kind of embedded in a, in a place where Jesus is telling three different parables, each one having to do with the redemptive nature of God. So the parable of the prodigal son is the third of these parables that he's teaching as he's talking to these folks. And he starts off by saying there was a father who had two sons, an older son and a younger son. The father was wealthy. He owned a lot of land, um, and both of his sons worked for him. Basically, the younger son decided that he wanted to leave his father's house, go make his own way out in the world. So he asks his father for the inheritance that that he would rightfully gain when his father dies. He asked for it up front, which most scholars tend to agree that that was not the most honoring thing that he could have asked of his father. Because in that culture and in that day, it was sort of like saying, you're as good as dead to me. I want to take what's mine and go my own way. But the father gave it to him. The father gave him his inheritance and he went out. The Bible says that he went to a foreign land and he spent it all on party. He partied. He had a good time. He wasted every bit of the inheritance and was left with nothing. And then, as fate would have it, a famine strikes. And now he's starving. So he hires himself out to a a wealthy landowner. And this landowner basically puts him at the bottom of the totem pole, feeding pigs in a pig pen. So one day, this younger son is standing in this pig pen, and he has this revelation. The Bible says he comes to himself. And he realizes, hang on, wait a minute. Now, in my father's house, the servants, the hired hands, not only have enough food to eat, but they have enough left over. And here I am wanting to eat the very food that I'm feeding pigs. What am I doing? So he gets up out of the pig pen. He walks back home. He starts heading back home. And he's rehearsing his apology, you know, as he's going, what he's going to say. He's like, man, I'm going to tell him I'm sorry. I've sinned against him and all heaven and all this. And he gets to the... He gets not far from his house, and the Bible says that his father saw him from a long way off and took off running. He runs down the road, which, in the, again, in this culture and in this day and time, it would have been really, it wouldn't have been normal for a man of this guy's wealth and stature to run anywhere. That's what servants did. People of this stature walked, or you walked to them, but he tucked in the robe and he took off running down the road and he runs to the prodigal son 
and the son starts his apology. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against all heaven. And he starts telling him what he did wrong. And then the father didn't even address that. He just hears repentance. And he says, bring me the robe. Bring me the ring. Bring me the shoes. Put it on him. In other words, he, he restores his identity. He restores the signet ring, the sign of authority. He restores this son. And he brings him back to the house. And they throw this huge party. Music and food. And he has this fatted calf that they've been raising for a special occasion. And he kills it, slaughters it. And they have this awesome party for this young guy. A lot of times when we talk about the prodigal, that's about where the story ends. We focus on those two characters, the father and the son. But there's a beeline in this story. Every good story has an A-line, which is like the main plot, and then there's like the B-line, which is like the subplot. Well, the, the subplot or the B-line of this story is the older brother. And the older brother's response to what has happened this day is something, it's, it's the B-line of the story, but it deserves A-line attention today. Because through this lens, I think God wants to show us something today. He wants to show us what it is to miss and not really understand your identity and your authority in your father's house. And so the title of the sermon today um, is In My Father's House. Charlie, you'll get it up for me here in just a second. It's called In My Father's House. And we're going to take a look at the older brother's response um, to what's going on here. So we're going to pick this up from right where the older brother comes in, 15, 28 through 31. So you can read along. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. This is what happened. The father, the older brother approaches the house. He hears music. He hears celebration. He, 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 there's a servant out from the house and he says, what's going on? And the servant fills him in. Your brother, the one that's been lost, he's come back home. We're celebrating. It's a party. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So I want to break down a little bit of the issue here going on in the older brother's heart. Because obviously, just reading this right here, there's a disconnect, right, between how he sees himself and how the father sees him. How he sees himself is quite different than what the father sees in him. That's applicable to us. Because sometimes we look at ourselves and we judge ourselves in a way that is not from the heart of God. And we end up, instead of valuing ourselves the way that God values us, we end up in this frame of mind. He considered him... Let's take a look at this real quick. There's two things that I want you to take a look at as we move, we move into this. Two areas that this guy is struggling with. 
The first one is identity, and the second one is authority. He doesn't understand who he is and what he has in his father's house. And under identity, the first two things that he needs to discover is, number one, who is my father? And number two, who am I? And under authority, he needs to figure out, what do I have and what can I do with what I have? These are two things that obviously this older brother has missed by a country mile. So I want to break this passage down, and let's look at this. This is really profound when you put his statements and the father's statements, uh, when you juxtapose them and look at them closely. Look at this. This is the son's view of himself. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. That's his identity. He sees himself as a slave. That word slaving in the Greek, that doesn't mean what we we think it means in 21st century Western American language. It means, to us, that would mean he's been working really hard. He used the Greek word, do you owe? I'm a slave. I've been a slave for you. Drop down and look at the father's view. Look at what the father says about his identity. My son. My son. He starts by correcting what was said. Slave? No. My son. My son. The father said, you are always with me. Look back up at what the son says. I've been slaving for you. Look at what the father says. You're always with me. You get it? This guy, this son, has been living his life with an orphan slave mentality. That's a tough way to live. That's a tough way to live in the natural. That's an even tougher way to live spiritually. And a lot of believers, unfortunately, live this type of life. They don't really get it. They don't really understand that they are with God, that God is with them. Instead, they're looking at themselves as I'm living for. I've got to do for. I've got to work for. And it's this appeasement type mentality. I've got to appease God. I've got to make him happy to gain his affection as a son and to gain what I want and to gain what I need. It's not the father's heart at all. At all. Drop down to the next thing in the son's view. It says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You never gave me. Drop down to what the father says. Everything I have is yours. Everything. You never gave me reveals he never understood what he had. He never understood what was readily available. Listen, in the Jewish culture of that day, to be the firstborn son in the family meant that you had just about equal status with the father. You know, you've heard the, you've heard the term firstborn over. You think of Colossians when it talks about Jesus being firstborn over creation. 
That doesn't mean he was first created over creation, like some cults interpret that. There's some cults that say, oh, the Father created Jesus, and then Jesus created everything else. That's not the way it was. Firstborn over creation means it's a title. It's not a description of, of, of their biological creation. It's a title. Firstborn over means Jesus is preeminent over creation. That's what the first century Jew would have heard. Firstborn over. And that's what this son misses. He's firstborn over his father's estate. He has preeminence. Everything the father has is his. So what's the problem? Why didn't he get it? Why hasn't he asked for a goat up until this? Or, or a fatted calf? Why hadn't he partied? What, what's holding him back? Why has he not realized he's not a slave? He's a son. Why has he not realized everything's at his disposal? What is it? It's perplexing, isn't it? I can't answer why he doesn't. The text doesn't show us that. The text simply reveals that he doesn't get it. But I can speak for us. I can talk about us. I can talk about me. I can talk about why I don't get it or haven't gotten it. And I think you can relate. There are some reasons why we struggle with identity and authority. Again, identity, let's talk about that one first. Identity, who is my father and who am I? A couple of things that I've, I want to talk about today. There's a lot, but there's two biggies that I want to hit on today. I call them identity thieves. These are some things that sometimes cause us not to understand who our Heavenly Father is, just how good He is. Like that song that we sang this morning, you are good. You are good. You're never going to let me, all, all of that. Sometimes we're singing those words with our mouths, and yet in our heart, there's a struggle. There can be a struggle, especially when we're going through stuff, especially when we're It's been a hard week, and we're declaring, you are good, you are good. We're struggling to get those words out. They're true nonetheless. Amen? But I want to talk about these two identity thieves for a minute. Bad relationship is the first one that I've listed. Now, as we're talking about a good father, we're focusing on a father who's good, who's merciful, compassionate, loving, loving. gave everything to make us his own, gave everything to bring us from an old covenant of wrath and judgment into a brand new covenant of forgiveness and grace. He gave everything to do that. Sometimes, well, for for those of us who grew up with a great earthly father, we can lay hold of that. We can see that. We go, man, yeah, I can see how a father is just so good and so giving and so merciful, so kind, so sacrificial. And we can lay hold of that. We can get it. It's an easy concept. But if you weren't raised in that kind of a house, if you didn't have that kind of a father, if your father was the opposite of that, if he was kind of a tyrant or a bully or hypercritical or judgmental or quick to anger, all of that stuff, it can sort of affect the way you might think about your heavenly father. And believe it or not, people will tend to 
draw from their past things that they knew about their earthly father and project them onto who their heavenly father is. I don't have the time this morning to go back into church history, but a lot of that happened, unfortunately. A lot of early church fathers up through the centuries had terrible dads, really, really rough childhoods. And some of the theories that they developed about God were were almost like they were looking at their earthly dad and cut and pasted over to their heavenly father in the way that they describe him, in the way that they relate to him. Angry, wrathful, vengeful. We're nothing. He's everything. We're dirt. He's gold. You know, the whole thing. Some of that gets attached to their theology and wound up in our ears many, many years later. But a lot of this has so much of this identity, failing to understand who our Father is, is can be connected to we are projecting things from an earthly father onto a heavenly father that are not true of his nature at all. The same applies for spiritual fathers and mothers. Let me say that. If you grew up in a religious system or in a denomination or any, any church and you had someone who was an authority, a spiritual authority in your life, and they were angry, and judgmental, and you could never please them, and they were, you know, uh, just didn't demonstrate the nature of God, you can also take that spiritual authority, that spiritual father or mother, and project that onto God as though that's the way he is. You know what I'm talking about? This really happens. This really happens. So relationships... Bad relationships, not really understanding that the heart of the Father is not at all like maybe some of the bad experiences that we've had with earthly fathers or mothers. This also works another way. If you grew up in a house with a father or a mother who was not the angry, you know, quick-tempered, you know, harsh um, individual, but let's swing all the way on the other side of the spectrum. Way overindulging, way, you know, spoiled, you, you know, spoil you to death, never enforce any boundaries, never, you know, never hold you accountable, never delegate any authority or hold you responsible for anything. Over here on this side, people like that also can grow up with a really warped image of what the Heavenly Father is like. I had a friend several years ago, a guy that I was kind of discipling, and he, he kind of had this going on, and he had been super spoiled as a child, um, no boundaries enforced, really just had a real problem with authority. And, and I was trying to disciple him and walk with him through some stuff, and he was telling me, he said, uh, he said, you know, man, the way I see it is like, Jesus is like my friend. So like when I pray, this is the way I pray. Hey, homie. How are you today? Yeah, you're my homeboy. You know, we're cool like that. And so this is how he opened prayer. And he was bragging to me about this, that this is my approach. And it's just no surprise, man, that he would view his heavenly authority or his heavenly um, father that way because that's the way he viewed his earthly father. He didn't even call his earthly father by dad. It was like he used the guy's first name. Like, no honor, 
Zero respect. So there's that end of the spectrum. That people can grow up and not really understand who their father is. And in light of that, they don't understand who they are. They grow up either tiptoeing around an angry, hard-to-please, critical dad or mom, and it just show, so shell-shocks them that they have no confidence or, or they don't really know who they are, and they turn into kind of like the older son said. The older son said, I've been slaving. I'm a slave. You know what slaves do? They perform. They have to perform to get what they want. They have to work. They have to earn it. It's not given like it's given to a son. So this type of mentality can turn them into a slave. Or they turn into someone who has no respect for God or very little, and they live their life any way they want to, denying the power of God that's available to them to be transformed and be renewed. So they can kind of grow up with that warped understanding because they don't know who their father is. They don't really know who they are. Let's talk about bad religion for a second. Because I've seen this firsthand. I had a mother and a father that grew up in a system of, let's just say, a stream of theology that was quite different than what my children are growing up in. Um, we embrace here, and what we've taught our kids is that we serve a faithful, loving, merciful, good father, good God, loves us, he's for us, he's not against us. When we receive Christ... We are in Christ. We are not working towards Christ the rest of our life. We are in Him, working from Him. Amen? That's what we've trained our children. That's what the Bible says. So my parents didn't really grow up in that stream of theology. They grew up in a stream that said, God is angry most of the time. And because He's angry, we have to be on our best behavior. We have to really walk a tightrope of holiness all the time. We have to be careful. We can't, we can't do this. We can't do that. It was a system of rules and regulations and heavy-handed stuff. They had to hide under the bed to read comic books. I'm talking about comic books, y'all. Like Dagwood. Okay? Weren't allowed to go to movies. Couldn't listen to, couldn't listen to certain, you know, music on the radio. It was just real super, super suppressive and oppressive. And my dad was telling me one time that he had this poor Sunday school teacher. Bless her heart. She was, you know, had grown up in this system. And so she had this view of God. You know, he's angry. You know, he's always just watching to to see if we're going to slip up. And so she had told these kids, she had gotten on her soapbox one day, and she told them, these skating rinks, and this is in the 60s, these roller skating rinks, They're houses of the devil because they play Elvis Presley and they play, you know, rock and roll. And she warned them. She warned these. She warned my dad and his classmates. She said, if Jesus comes back and finds you in a roller skating rink, you are not going to heaven. You will be left behind. And so it sounds funny to us, but this is so sad to live under that kind of bondage and that kind of oppression. Well, bless this poor lady's heart. One day she got free enough to go to a roller skating rink. Somebody invited her. I don't know if it was a birthday party or some some event. 
she goes to the roller skating rink, and against all odds, she puts on a pair of roller skates. She goes out onto the floor, and she's skating, and she's getting free, and then she falls and breaks her arm. So guess what? Guess what? God judged me. He judged me. He saw me having fun in that devil house. And he made me fall down and break my arm. And that became her testimony about roller skating rings. That was her proof. The proof is in the pudding. God judged me. He was angry with me. And he, he made me fall and broke my arm. She didn't understand who her father was. This is years ago. Hopefully she's in heaven right now skating. That's what I hope. I hope she's so free. But she didn't understand who her father was. She didn't get it. She couldn't see his heart. It had been veiled by a system of theology that painted God as a really harsh, angry individual. Um, let's juxtapose that, her story, to the one of the woman who's caught in adultery and brought before Jesus and thrown at his feet. Caught in the act. Drugged before him and thrown at his feet for judgment. And the Pharisees and those standing around, they know the law. And really this is, they're just trying to trip Jesus up. But they're saying, what are you going to do? Caught her in adultery. We all know what the law says. We are here with stones. We're ready. And they're waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. What does he do? First, he deals with their accusers, her accusers. After he pauses for a minute. I don't want to get sidetracked, but I've often wondered, like, what was he doing when he was pausing? Because it says he bent down and wrote something in the dirt. I just wonder what he wrote. doesn't matter. But when he got back up, he dealt first with her accusers. And he says to her accusers, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. What do they do? One by one, drop their rocks and walk away. Oldest first, because they probably had the most sin. They all walk away. And then what does he do? He goes over to her. And he gets down on her level and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she lifts her head and looks up and says, I have none. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. Now get up and go and sin no more. Translation, you're forgiven You're free. Now go. This is the Father's heart. This is how He deals with us. When we are caught, when we are obviously in a place with no defense. She wasn't making a defense for herself, was she? No defense. But we are bowed before Him low in repentance. This is how He restores. This is how he saves. This is how he redeems. And this is how he gets you up on your feet and sends you out to live a new life. 
This is our Father's heart. That's who He is. That's what He does. It's really important that we understand that if we're going to understand who He is and who we are. Let's quickly talk about authority. The other thing that the older brother was struggling with is, what do I have and what can I do? He says in the Scripture, he said, you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Translation, the Texas translation is, you ain't give me nothing, so I couldn't do nothing. That's what he's telling his father. You didn't give me anything. I never had anything. His father says, everything I had was yours. Everything. So he didn't understand it. So let's look at this again. What, his, his question of authority, what do I have and what can I do? The authority thieves. Same two culprits. Let's look at these real quick. Bad relationship and bad religion. Bad relationship. And again, it's easy to understand good authority if you grew up in a house with a father who demonstrated good authority. And what I mean by that is they disciplined you well and right, and they also gave you a measure of authority starting from an early age. And they trained you in how to do certain things. And they encouraged you and they empowered you to do things. And and the older you got, the more responsibility you were given and you were empowered to do more until finally you reach the state of adulthood and you're out and you're walking in your own authority. We get that. If you're raised in a house with a good dad who raised you like that, but what if you were raised in a house where the father was hypercritical? He gave you a measure of authority, and then you started to do something, and then the, at the, or mother, and then at the first screw up, he stepped in. See, that's not how you do it. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. Come on, what's wrong with you? And just took it right back. Never mind. I'll do it myself. If you're raised in that kind of a household with that type of a father or mother who didn't understand how to delegate authority and train you up and how to walk in authority, you could take that and you could project it onto the Heavenly Father, especially if you're flowing in a stream of theology that says that's already the way He is. Some people do that. They don't really understand what they have. Why? Because they never had anything. They were never given enough authority to walk in to develop it. So they lack confidence. They lack boldness. They lack freedom. They remain a slave. They never learn to flow in their full authority. Bad religion. And I'm like, I say bad religion and you're like, and you're thinking, can religion be bad? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been in school trying to finish my ministry education, and I'm just almost about to be done in September, the end of this month. The, the beginning of this journey, we spent the first semester just unpacking different streams of theology and trying to understand why they believe what they believe. And it is amazing within Christianity how many streams of theology missed it just miss the heart of God. I'm not saying they're doing everything wrong, but as far as this topic about who God is and how He relates to us, they just, it's just, it's rough. It's very eye-opening. 
It's very eye-opening. But bad religion, a religion that paints God as an authoritarian figure, there's a word that was cultivated in theology around the 14 or 1500, I'd say around 1100 A.D., and then carried over into the 13, 14, and really gained ground in the 1500s. And there's a tag word, sovereignty. Sovereignty. We've all heard the word, sovereignty. But a definition got poured into that word that was not correct through a certain stream of theology. The definition was this. Sovereignty means all-controlling. Like God has control over every single minute detail and he micromanages every single thing right down to the little smallest detail of your life. That's we say God is sovereign. That's a very what we would call Platonistic. Plato kind of developed that theory, actually, and he wasn't a Christian. But he developed that. He said if there was a God above all my Greek gods, this is what he would be. And he that was one of the words he... And so a stream of theology picked up that word and developed it and drug it into Western Christianity. And so we're given this view of a God who micromanages every detail of our lives. Sovereignty never meant all controlling. Sovereignty means all reigning. There's a difference. Controlling is manipulating every single thing Everything. Reigning is, I have full authority and sovereignty. I all reign and rule over everything. But within the purview of my authority, I give you authority. Let me say it this way. I'm a landlord. I have an, I'm not, but if I were, I'd have a duplex. And in that duplex, I would be sovereign over that duplex. In other words, no smoking in my duplex. Um, you have to root for the cowboys. Um, just so, you know, I'd have some rules. So, but I wouldn't come in every evening and tell you, now tomorrow you're going to eat this for breakfast, and you're going to get this many bathroom breaks, and you're going to at this time you're going to study, and at this time you get to watch TV. That's your world. That's what you get to do. I'm sovereign over the duplex. I make the rules. Here's the boundaries. But within my sovereignty, within my reigning, I give you authority. I give you freedom to make decisions. I didn't create you, speaking from God, I didn't create you to be a robot. That I pre-programmed to do a bunch of things that I pre-decided what you were going to do. I never wanted that. God created man to have fellowship. He's relational. And in the garden, this is what he wanted. He gave Adam dominion. Name the animals. Name the fish. What do you see? Adam's got all this authority. He's reigning within his freedom that God's given him. God didn't micromanage, and he doesn't micromanage. See, and we, can, we can find ourselves seeking for God. and ah, I point the finger back at me. God, show me your will. What's your will? How many of us have prayed that prayer? This week, okay? What's your will? Show me your will. We're so hyper-focused on missing the will of God, we're afraid to make a move. 
And God's like, what do you want to do? That's what God asks us sometimes. What do you want to do? You know, God woke me up with that one time. I'd been seeking him for something, and I finally came to him. I was like, you've got to tell me. I'm on the verge of doing this. And he's like, what do you want to do? That was his response. And he was like, here's, here's plan A, and here's what you can expect down that road, and here's plan B, and here's what you can expect. Here's the, here's the pros and cons. And there's this released wisdom, and I was like, oh, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're going to help, you're going to give me wisdom to make a, a, a free choice. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Amen. That's how God relates to us within that context of freedom. He's sovereign. He is sovereign. Not an authoritarian. He's not a dictator. He's not into that. He's not into that at all. At all. So I just want to—I want to put that on your heart this morning. We got to—we got to land pretty quick. Let me go over one more thing here. How do we know the Father? I've spent a lot of time this morning talking about who He's not. How do we know who He is? I think Jesus made this real clear to His disciples because they asked this question a couple of times. But here's one of them. He said, "If you really know Me, you will know My Father as well." From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, come on! Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? You want to know who the Father is? Learn who the Son is. Learn His heart. Study His ways. Watch His life. See how He interacts with sinners. See how He interacts with the broken and the hurting and the downtrodden and the poor. See what He does. Learn His heart. Know His heart. And then you will know the Father. Amen? John 14, 12 through 14 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This, probably in your Bible, I know it's in a lot of different translations, but in this Bible, there's a subheading that says, Jesus comforts the disciples before he leaves. These were like parting words to to the people that he's been walking with. Look, I'm going to go away. You're not going to see me anymore. But it's okay. Because whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. And will do them even greater. (coughs) Say whoever. That's us. Me ever, you ever, we ever, whoever. He didn't didn't put a line of demarcation on whoever was. He said, whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me 
will do the works that I've been doing, and they will do <clears throat> even greater. Some people read this and have a hard time with it because somebody will preach it and say, come on, church, we're called to do greater works. We are called to, to, to bring the kingdom, to bring the supernatural, to do all the things that Jesus gave us power to do through the Holy Spirit. And then there's always somebody that say, well, you think you're going to do more than Jesus did? That's not what he meant. He didn't mean that we would do things that were above what Jesus did. That's not what that word means. Greater there doesn't mean quality, that we would do things better. It meant quantity. We would do more than Jesus did. Why? Because he poured out the Holy Spirit on us. And now instead of one Jesus with the Holy Spirit on the earth, doing there's millions, and we're able to do greater works, and that's our identity and our authority. We are called to do greater works, greater things. John fourteen twenty. on that day, you will realize, and it really comes down to this, guys. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. That's big. We're not working towards God. We're not slaving for God. We are sons and daughters with God under His authority, under His Lordship. He is God, our Father. We are His sons and daughters. We are with Him. That's a game changer. That changes everything. He's Emmanuel, God with us we are in him he is in us do you get that do you really get that this morning everything hinges everything to do with our identity everything to do with our authority hinges on laying hold of that i want to ask the worship team to come on back up (coughs) we're going to close this morning i hope that uh, you've heard things. I hope maybe some things I said challenged you. Maybe some things I said stretched you a little bit. Or maybe some things I said awakened you. But we're going to spend just a moment in the Lord's presence as we close this out this morning. Because um, I really want you to get this this morning. Don't leave here this morning not knowing who you are, not knowing who your father is, and not knowing what you have. So I ask you to, in just a moment, I was up really early this morning just praying over our time together, and I asked the Lord to uh, give me, because, <laughs> oh, the Bible is so good. There's so many things in the Word of God that could I could pull out. It would take forever to tell you what God thinks about you and to describe who you are to Him. So I asked this morning, I said, Lord, help me put pen to paper and just give me your heart. Give me a letter to the church today to just tell them some things from, from your heart. So as I sat and began to write, scriptures began to come. And so I took some artistic license and I kind of, I wrote a letter from God to you this morning. From his heart to your heart. So I want to ask you just for a moment, bow your head, close your eyes. This is from Father. 
This is from God, your Father, to you. Dear child, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You are skillfully and wonderfully made. I am your creator, redeemer, healer, sustainer. I am the lifter of your head. I have defeated your enemy, forgiven your sin, and conquered your grave. I have come that you might have abundant life. And even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. Nothing in all of creation shall ever separate you from my love. For you are no longer a slave to fear. You are a child of God. Love your Father. So let's just take a moment. I know we're running out of time here, but I want to have my prayer teams come. Have some people over on the side, east side, Kirk and Tina on this side, Jay and Tasha, and me and Emily will be right here in the middle. This morning, maybe you just need to be reminded who your father is and how much he loves you. This morning, maybe you came in with one image of who he is and that is slowly shifting a different direction. Or maybe you came in with an image of who you are and it's slowly shifting a different direction. You need some time to pray into that. Maybe you're here this morning and you are facing big decisions. You've got stuff on your heart that you've got to figure out. And you need to understand the freedom you have and the wisdom of God to make a good decision. Maybe you're here this morning and it's just been a long time since you've been embraced by the Father's arms. Maybe it's been a long time since you've been held. You just want to come and spend time either praying, being prayed for these guys who know how to hear God or you just want to spend time here at the altar alone by yourself. That's fine too. You just want to have a reconnection moment with the Father in His heart. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your goodness and kindness and compassion. Thank you for calling us sons and daughters this morning. Lord, I just pray right now as hearts are breaking open to you that you would just release freedom in this house this morning. I pray, Father, that there would just be a release, Lord God, of identity and authority through the Holy Spirit into our hearts. I pray for an awakening among us this morning to a new way of life, to a new way of thinking about you to a new way of thinking about us. Holy Spirit, I just invite you right now. Just come and take the reins for the next few minutes. Just take over and let our hearts be full of yours. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you need prayer, don't wait. Just come down right now or if you want to spend time praying here, take advantage of this moment.
dismiss us and release us, but if you need to stay here, if you need to remain, if you need to spend some time at this altar yourself or with with any of us, um, I encourage you to do that. Or if you just need to stay right where you are and continue to meet with God, I encourage you to do that as well. He loves you. He loves you. You're His child. He gave everything so that can be true. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord God, that never fails. Thank you for your promises that are true. Thank you for who we are in you, for all that you've given us to make us yours, to make us children of God. Lord, I just pray that as we 
go from this place into a new week, that we would walk in a brand new authority, in a brand new identity. Father, I pray that where there's fear or confusion or shame, that right now, right now, in this moment, those things would begin to break and fall away. And Father, that we would walk with confidence and boldness as children of God who are seated in Christ. That you would give us the assurance that we are walking with you and that you are with us. Father, we love you and we expect great things this week. I pray, Father, that every person in this room right now, this week, would have an an encounter with you, but also an encounter with someone else who needs you. And that in that moment, we would have the words of grace that they need. Father, send us out of here with a holy boldness. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. All God's people said, Amen. 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 You are dismissed. Have a great week and God bless you. You split the sea so